I know that happens was I was just preaching at a high school summer camp this past weekend, and the week before I had um, dislocated my ankle um, doing something I've done a thousand times before, and I was like, my primary concern was like, am I going to be able to play kids, play games with the kids at summer camp? Not like, will I bounce back from this injury, uh, but will I be able to still play the games I want to play? And I went and bought a nice little ankle brace, sewed it up real tight, and I was playing, and then I so it was my left ankle that I hurt, but then I was playing kickball with the high school kids, and I pulled my groin muscle, and uh, it was one of those, like, you, it, like, hurts, and you're like, dang, this is annoying, um, and then I'm kind of, I'm walking all weird off of the, the field, and there's another pastor, a guy named Matt, who saw me walking weird, and he was like, oh, is your ankle bothering you? I was like, no, uh, this is actually, now my, my groin hurts, and, and he looked at me, and he's like, did you just turn 30? And, and, and he's like, because in your early 30s is when you have to go through the process of learning that you can't play as hard as you did when you were in your 20s or in your teens. And most of the time in your early 30s is you just getting hurt because you're trying to play like you're 25 still. By the time you're like in your late 30s, you kind of realize the pace you have to play to be able to keep playing. But that's like the, so I'm just in that phase where I'm trying to learn how to do that. But the, the whole idea of like trying to manage um, my competing fears, you know, because I was afraid of my ankle getting not hurt worse, but I wasn't really afraid of that. What I was really afraid of was not embarrassing all the high school kids I was playing against. That was like my, I was joking with uh, Luke. He's like, what are you most excited about preaching at this camp? And I was like, you know, one of the goals of the Christian life is to uh, represent God to people. You know, you're made in God's image. You get to image his character. And one of the things with God's character is he crushes people under his mighty hand. And so I'm going to, I'm going to I'm going to image God to these high school football players and um, humble them under my hand. And then I pulled my groin, and I rolled my ankle, and Luke was saying, whose mighty hand was crushing who? And this, uh, the, I was, I, but I was really nervous about, I'm not going to be able to do the full summer camp thing if I don't do this, and I end up being foolish and not warming up well and not compensating well for being semi-hurt, you know, uh, and trying to just manage some of those, like, competing fears, right? And, and that's some of what we see in this text, this idea of competing fears, Right? There's a famine that hits that causes fear right? that for sane, sober reasons. People starve to death in world history. That's just people still starve to death. Uh, that's like not being afraid of a famine is not unreasonable, especially in like 4,000 years ago. Right? That's a pretty reasonable fear. Um, they're afraid of this famine. Um, but what ends up happening is you have these people who have, have a lot of stuff and they're more afraid of the famine than they are of God. And because the people who have a lot of stuff are more afraid of the famine than they are of God, they end up oppressing poor people. And really kind of the big idea I think this text is kind of showing us and is challenging us, because uh, most of us are not agrarian landowners or, or noblemen in, from 4,000 years ago, but there's this reality that all of us are having to manage our fears and weigh our fears against the fear of the Lord. That if we fear something more than we fear God, we're going to be in bad shape. But I just, we, we talk a lot about how um, what we love most controls us. Um, but one of the things, especially in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, is this idea that our fears control us. That so much of becoming a healthy person is developing rightly ordered fears. It's not about eliminating all fears but it's about rightly ordering your fear, right? A famine comes into the land. That's something, and so, so here's a, what a fear is. A fear is something that commands your attention, right? Like growing up in Arizona, you know, if 
there's a scorpion in the house, everyone stops what they're doing and it commands your attention, right? It's like a, and there's attentiveness to it. Where does it go? And you watch it and it crawls. And then someone's like, don't take your eye off it. I'm going to get the shoe. You know, or don't take your eye off it. I'm going to get the cup. Or don't. And so someone has to keep their eye on it because if you turn your head for a second, that thing's in a crack and gone. And now nobody sleeps for like a week, right? There's, so like fears command our attention. And so what ends up happening is people are more attentive to the famine and the possible out, outcomes of the famine than they are attentive to the Lord and the presence of the Lord and the law of the Lord. And what ends up happening is that the poor are oppressed. So this concept of our fears controlling us is probably going to be some of the main application we get out of this this morning. Uh, some of you who are more wealthy, uh, there's going to be a handful of more obvious takeaways about the way that you leverage your wealth and your position and your power. Um, but for people who you're going like, well, I don't own land. I don't not really. I couldn't oppress someone if I wanted to because I don't have any power. Uh, it's more about the centrality of the fear of the Lord. And so, looking at this text, um, the very first chunk of it that um, Cody read for us, what we end up seeing is um, there's a famine coming in. There's the king's tax. The king is taxing them, and the famine is rolling in. And so the king's not letting up on his taxes. And there's this kind of big pressure going on here. And this is a great opportunity for Israel to um, start blaming. Um, the government they're under for their problems, right? The reason that Israel's in this position in the first place is because they've been unfaithful. That God had uh, called the people to himself. He had blessed them, called them to be a blessing. He said, God, I'm going to make you be a light to the nations. I want you to be able to show the world what it's like to live under my good and gracious reign, my good and gracious rule. But instead, Israel is, ends up being pulled into the darkness of the nations rather than being a light in the darkness to the nations. So Israel's unfaithfulness is the reason that they are now um, being uh, in exile underneath this foreign king, King Artaxerxes, that they're under the Persian reign. And so the Persians do not fear the Lord. They never have feared the Lord. They don't have any real, real regard for the well-being of people as individuals or persons. They just have a regard for power and a desire for more of it. And so God uses the Persians to punish Israel. And so Israel's in this position of kind of being um, victimized, but it's at least kind of their own fault. Right, in the book of Exodus, you have Israel being victimized by Egypt, and that's 100% not their fault. Here we have them being um, in exile um, and in slavery to the Persians, and it basically is their fault uh, because they've chosen to be unfaithful and they're being punished for their sin. And so they're in this predicament where it's kind of or mostly their fault, and the famine hits the land, and they're having this tax come against them. And what's going on is they're saying that we are trying to get grain to eat the poor persons within Israel, so there's, there's gaps in income or gaps in amount of asset they have within Israel. It's kind of important to notice here that it's not the presence of income inequality that is injustice, but it's actually the process that leads to the possible exploitation of the poor that is the injustice here. This isn't like a call to say there should not be discrepancies in how much people have. It's recognizing that when there's discrepancies in how much people have, that there are people who are more likely to be exploited and taken advantage of than others. In particular, it's the poor. In verse 5, it says, Our flesh is the flesh of our brothers, meaning we are all Israel, and our children are the same children. Yet we are having to force our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. So when you're going, I can't feed my children... Um, that wealthy landowner can feed my children, but they'll feed my children in exchange for my children becoming their slaves. So it's not just they're going, I'm going to choose me over my kids. They're going, if my kids become slaves, they'll at least get fed. My kids being my kids equals they starve to death. 
And so for the sake of their own children and for their own sake, they're giving their children into slavery so their children have food to eat. We're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Um, the end of verse 5 says, But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what's going on here is that people within Israel are charging interest to people within Israel that's causing them to kind of go into this downward cycle of it's expensive to be poor, and they're over-leveraging themselves because they're trying to survive. This isn't a group of people who are spending beyond their means, racking up credit card debt because they want the latest iPhone. That's not what's happening here. This is a group of people who are trying to survive and trying to eat, and in order to do so, they're having to do financially uh, unsound things in the name of survival, and they're going, it's not in our power to help it. All right, this is kind of when uh, you know, the, the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps narrative kind of wears out. Sometimes that applies. In this situation, it doesn't apply. This is very much a, these people are being victimized and oppressed, and that's the way that the Bible reads this. This whole headline we have here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is the oppression of the poor. It's not in our power to help it. And what we see here is that there's really kind of two stories here, two groups of people um, who have power and one group of people who doesn't have power. So power mostly comes from either a position or possessions. And the nobles and the, and the officials um, have both. They have positions and they have possessions. When you don't have positions or you don't have possessions, then you don't have power, right? Like in my house, um, my son has very little power because I have the possessions and the position, right? He has some power, you know, just through like screaming and crying, I can listen to him sometimes, but it's very much he has power when I give it to him, right? When, when I decide to share my power by listening, which is kind of ideally what dad should be doing, right? But it's mine to give away. It's not his to give. Does that make sense? So I have it. Sometimes I give it. In this situation, you have the poor people who, because of the famine, are struggling. Not only are they struggling, but they're struggling because the people with the power are being disobedient. Multiple times in the Old Testament, um, Israel is forbidden to lend at interest to other Israelites. It's like, hey, this is our family situation here. We're not going to profit off of other people's difficulty. We're not going to capitalize on other people's suffering. We're not going to purposefully extract as much as we can from the vulnerabilities of other persons. We're not going to do that. The other nations do that. We don't do that. And so Nehemiah gets all hot and angry and super mad. And there's two things we can kind of see here. Verse 6, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Um, the healthiest and holiest of all anger is a response to injustice. Right? Uh, this is uh, an anger that aligns with the heart of God. Uh, see, a lot of times now we have a whole... Uh, so if, I, if you went to a group and saw like 100 non-Christians and asked them, uh, should you care about how poor people are treated? hundred non-Christians. Um, probably a hundred of them, maybe 99, you know, there's always that kind of one percenter, not like economically, but just mentally, emotionally, you know, the one percent of people are just kind of out there. Should you care about how poor people are treated? Basically, all people in the United States would say yes. Yeah, we care about how poor people are treated. And you ask them why, on what grounds? Why should you, like, should you be angry when the poor are oppressed or mistreated. Oh yeah, that's something to be angry about. That's a good thing to be angry about. But when you ask them why, 
someone who's really not a Christian has no good reason for that. Right? For most of world history, in most places in the world, the fact that the rich took advantage of the poor was just accepted and obvious. It's just the class system. That's how it works. In through modern era, if you have kind of like a pure naturalistic Darwinist framework where the entire way the world works is through this kind of survival of the fittest thing. It's the, you know, the, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the, the strong eat the weak mentality. Like, why on earth would you care about how the poor are treated if you're a survival of the fittest person? There might be preference comes into it, but even at the end of the day, if all you have is kind of this like baseline secular worldview where um, all that we are as humans is these kind of like fizzing buckets of atoms mashing into each other, then there's no real moral imperative for any reason for anyone to treat anyone well, much less why would I disadvantage myself for the sake of another person? Or why would I not milk as much profits as I can if it meant someone else is off a little worse? if I'm really doing survival of the fittest, if that's really my operating position. So the question is like, why? So Nehemiah is angry at the oppression of the poor. And so this is one, like, maybe you're not a Christian and you're here in this room and you think poor people should be treated well. I want to say, like, why? On what grounds? That's not me just being cynical, but it's me saying basically all secular worldviews, and in particular, all worldviews that don't have this idea of the image of God and the dignity and value of every single person, man, woman, or child, if you don't have that operating a worldview, then there's really no compelling reason that the poor should be treated well. It's really economically efficient to treat the poor poorly. That was like the whole reason why it took a much longer time for slavery to be eradicated in the United States was economics. You know, especially like Christians from our tradition, like George Whitfield, et cetera, people like that, who um, had like a theological position that was slavery's bad, but economically benefited from it. And so it took them uh, decades and hundreds of years longer to actually eradicate slavery because of their financial incentive to overlook things. There's people in our, maybe you're like, I don't identify as evangelical or whatever. It's like, well, if you're here, so you at least kind of do, you know? So, like, that's our, our history. It's like this, this reality of uh, people recognizing that it's financially and economically efficient to oppress people who have nothing. It's, it's economically beneficial, so if you're a pure economics person, it's like, there's a good reason. Um, two, it makes you feel good and powerful to, like, be worshipped and revered by people, um, to be able to tread on people. Like, it, um, you know, I would Everyone kind of wants to be king in their own heart, much less might as well get to be like one. So this is a conversation that would be great to have with some of your non-Christian friends. Like, why, on what basis should we treat people with less as equals? Because there is none, unless you have a creational biblical worldview. So Nehemiah gets all angry when he hears the outcry. Verse 7, it says, and he took counsel with myself. This is a good next step. This is him kind of saying he counseled himself. He, calm, he took deep breaths. He thought it out. He doesn't just react and go spurting about it on Facebook. He, do, he kind of thinks and considers. And then he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. And here's, so here's what's crazy about the nobles. This is the second time these folks have um, popped up here. Last time was in Nehemiah 3, verse 5. 
it's it, in, the lit, in the long list in Nehemiah 3 about all the people who are building the wall. And the wall is here to be a symbol of Israel's purity, that they're not going to be um, you know, penetrated by the immorality of the other nations. Rather, they're going to be um, a people committed to God's way. And so the wall is broken down. They're rebuilding the wall as a symbol of um, like the moral wall that they want to have. Rather than being like the nations, we want to be a light to the nations. And so they're rebuilding this wall, and they're listing off all the people. All of chapter 3 is like, these people did that, these people did that, these people did that. Nehemiah 3, verse 5, it says, but the nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Skipping ahead to chapter 5, we have the nobles extracting interest and oppressing the poor. The nobles are not getting a good rap here. They're people who consider serving the Lord stooping, and they're people who won't do it, and there are people who are breaking the Lord's law for the sake of their own benefit. Now, see, what's happening here is these nobles and the officials are not asking themselves the question, how can we do our best to oppress the poor? That's not what they're asking. Basically, few evil people in world history have asked that question. How can we do our best at oppressing the poor? I'm going to win at oppressing the poor. That's not what's happening. What the nobles are doing is they're saying, there's a famine. How can we profit from this? How can I do what's best for me? They're probably not even considering the effect on the poor. They're saying, we need to, you know, angle ourselves, position ourselves, put ourselves in such a way that I'm going to maximize my profits. You know, the Bible is not against profit anywhere. The Bible's not against buying and selling goods and services, the free exchange. That's not anywhere deal. But when you have an ethic of love, people always come over profits. It's not that they totally replace or eradicate profit. But all of a sudden you have these nobles in the midst of a famine capitalizing on the economic insecurity of the poor. You're extracting interest, each from the other. And he has a great assembly, and Nehemiah rails against them. And I said to them, verse 8, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they are silent. This is one of the healthiest responses to being confronted in sin. It's silence. There's something about that presence of God, you know, where... You didn't know there's a scorpion, and now you know there's a scorpion. Like, I've been functioning as this atheist, and all of a sudden, God's in the room. And all of a sudden, your worldview gets more complicated. You go from just having a supply-demand chart to having a supply-demand and the authority of God chart. <laughs> there's a third variable, all of a sudden, in your face, and they're silent. What are you going to say? No, I'm not doing that. It's very obvious. They could not find a word to say. Verse 9. I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? See, in the context of the book of Nehemiah, what's happening is Israel's being punished and exiled for their unfaithfulness. Then uh, they get this opportunity, this blessing. All of a sudden, the Lord's favor is on Nehemiah to rebuild the wall and to restore, to some degree, their, their dignity as a nation. And when their dignity as a nation is restored, they might be able to take up their vocation again to be a light to the nations. So there's opportunity here. It's exciting. We might be able to save face. Because right now, the nations are taunting them, saying, you think you're the Lord's people? 
look at how you're in shambles. You're saying you're blessed to be a blessing? Doesn't look like it. And so there's this taunting thing happening. It's kind of probably like what you experience when you watch the news or the media, talk to your friends. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who are like, oh, evangelical Christian. Hmm. God's people. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Sure, yeah. I'm not going there. I'm not going with you. Blessed to be a blessing. Lover of the one who died for him, like died for, his, gave away his life for the sake of the life of others. Yeah, you guys do that really well. Yeah, that's great. Um, there's this walking with this hypocritical witness that's just obvious, and they see it, and they get it. And now in this position, and so here's what's the other thing that's cool about the book of Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah, is there's the, his, so in the Bible, there's the historical literature, which is kind of like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, um, then Joshua, then you have books like First and Second Samuel, the Chronicles, which are kind of like telling you what happened. Then you have like prophetic literature, which is the prophets um, calling God's people to faithfulness. But then you have the section called the wisdom literature, which is uh, about like reflecting on life with skill. Most obviously like the book of Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, those types of things. But when the Bible was like uh, put together, when the canon was being finalized, a lot of scholars think it was like actually um, the prophet Jeremiah who kind of like ordered the books and put them all together because they had them in the temple and in the scrolls. But how did the scroll go to be one big scroll? Um, but Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah, is right at the end of the historical literature and right at the beginning of the wisdom literature. And so there's this debate among the scholars, is the book of Nehemiah a historical book, meaning telling you what happened, or is it a wisdom literature book, telling you about how to reflect on your life with wisdom? And so there's hot debates about this. A lot of people with PhDs in Old Testament go in wisdom literature, historical literature, uh, and so whenever I see that happening, my default is just like, well, it's obviously both. That's what it is, you know. So we just get along, it's both. But there's this, there's this reality here that especially the wisdom literature folks say that what happens is you have kind of have, you have the problem, then you have the solution to the problem. Then in Nehemiah chapter 4, you have this external opposition, right? Reasons outside of you that you might fail, how you have to overcome the opposition. But then you get to Nehemiah 5, and it's internal opposition. Reasons inside of you, you might fail. This is the point in the book of Nehemiah where like, how did Israel get in this position in the first place? It was by exploiting the poor, dishonoring the word of the Lord, and doing what felt right in their own hearts rather than walking in reverence to God Most High. And here you have, we're trying to restore our dignity as a nation, and you have them doing the same thing continually. Like, there are always reasons outside of us that we might fail, but Nehemiah 5 in particular is reasons inside of us we might fail. Self-sabotage. We live in a culture moment where all the reasons we fail are outside of us. Someone else's fault. Where as many boxes you can check on the victim card equals, here's all the reasons why I don't have to be an overcomer. And again, this story does have real victims in it. So real victims exist. But here we have Israel victimizing themselves through their unfaithfulness, through their folly, through their rebellion. The nations are taunting us. We expect Persia to sell us into slavery because that's what Persians do. They're pagans. Their king thinks that he is God. 
Let's not be mad when the unbelieving world around us acts like the unbelieving world around us. The real problem is, why are God's people doing the same thing that those people are doing? I expect Persia to send us into slavery. You are doing this. Even you sell your brothers that they may be sold. They could not find a word. Let us abandon exacting of interest now. Return to them this very day. This is one of the parenting phrases I heard growing up. Delayed obedience is disobedience. St. Augustine prayed all the time. He said before he was like really a Christian. Lord, make me sexually pure, just not yet. Lord, help me consider the poor in my finances next tax year after I get this tax break. Lord, help me, help me uh, not leverage what I have for the sake of making other people small. Just do it next month after these bills clear. Once the famine ends, then we'll go back to considering the poor. There's all these reasons to delay obedience. A lot of really good reasons if God doesn't exist to delay disobedience, to delay obedience. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards. Give it all back. Then they said, we'll restore these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. One of the reasons that people think that this might be wisdom literature is because um, people tend to not just be convicted and then repent right away. <laughs> do it right now. Okay, we'll do it. Like, eh, did that really happen? I don't know. That's like one notch below resurrection is people immediately repenting of their sin right away. Like, people don't rise from the dead, and people don't give up their sin right away. That's kind of like the, this is one of the miracles of the Bible, is when people repent of their sin right away and actually do it. So he calls the priests, make them swear to do as they promised. That's kind of like the modern-day equivalent of, like, put your hand on the Bible and swear the priests are meant to be that. And then he gives this great, like, illustration of shaking them out from how it goes on this. And so they have this position, and what ends up happening is then Nehemiah, and the second chunk here that Cody didn't read, because um, I asked him not to, was... Um, the, this idea that um, in verses 14 through 19, what's happening is that Nehemiah says, like, because he was the governor, he's appointed governor in the land of Judah, um, there's like this legal amount of tax that he's allowed to take from people. Um, so he says, um, I was the governor, and I, no, neither I nor my brothers ate the allowance of the governor. Um, and he says that the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them all their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver, um, and even their servants lorded over the people. This is one of the reasons why I think the Bible tells a more uh, nuanced story of economic disparity than kind of the most popular secular economists do, is that it's, it's not really the class issue, right? The way that Karl Marx tells the story is there's the, the bourgeoisie and there's the proletariat and there's like the, the evil people with stuff and the not evil people without stuff and the, the people without stuff need to take back the means of production so that we can have an, a clear economic distribution all the way across the deal. But one of the things we see here is that you know greed and inconsiderate actions and the willingness to exploit people for your own gain uh, has something that happens from top to bottom. Here it says, even their servants lorded it over the people. And so even if you have one notch up on someone, uh, your willingness to disadvantage them. You might have seniority by one month of, from a coworker, and using that to your own advantage rather than to decide what's right for them is part of the issue here. And so this is, again, going back to, like, justice is not necessarily measured by outcome, but it's measured by process and procedure. That it's actually the, the unjust process that makes the outcome unjust, not the outcome itself is the measure of the process. But it's this, this willingness to lord it over, the disadvantaging others for the sake of self. So what Nehemiah is saying is there was a legal amount that I was allowed to extract. 
So Nehemiah is going, I had legal grounds to extract things from people that would cause them to suffer. And so one of the things that this text is also showing us is that saying it is legal is not even close to an adequate justification for a choice we're trying to make. Well, it was legal. Christians don't just ask what is legal in the law of the land. There's a, a different and a higher question. There's both what is legal in terms of the law of the land, and there's what is legal according to the law of the Lord. This is one of the things that St. Augustine would say again, is that the unjust law is no law at all. And the way you measure an unjust law is if it is the Lord's law or if it's just a manifestation of it at this, the city level. And what he says is, I could have taken so much more from all these people. Um, verse 18, now what was prepared at my expense, he's going like, so I, I used my own stuff. I didn't like make the people do this stuff. Um, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. So the difference between Nehemiah and the other people with possessions is Nehemiah is considering the implications of his decisions on the, the, on the workers, on the people, on the poor, on the people without the assets. So whereas the nobles are asking the question, what's going to best serve me and my house? Nehemiah is asking the question, what are the implications going to be on the workers? This happens in multi-tiered companies all the time where you have people on the front lines executing policy made by people um, in, you know, in ties and suits, you know, a thousand miles away, and the policies don't make sense, but there's like, there's this not listening to the people. And so one of the things we see in Nehemiah, the acts of wisdom, is he, his ear is to the, the people who are going to be executing the work. His ears to the ground. He's considering. So Nehemiah has more to deal with than the other people. Because if you're just acting in, as a secular business person, you only have to consider supply and demand. But when you're acting as a Christian follower of the Lord business person, you have to consider supply and demand and the effect on the people. And so this is one of the realities that following Jesus makes your life more complicated, not less complicated. That all of a sudden you have more fears that are competing. You have more things going on. And this is what Nehemiah's big point is in verse 18. The servants lord of the people, but I did not do so, the end of verse 18, because of the fear of God. The whole grounding of the reason that Nehemiah, who was himself a noble, is treating people differently than other nobles is the presence of the fear of God in Nehemiah and the absence of the fear of God and the other nobles. And here's what's hard about the fear of God is it's immeasurable in other people. I can't look at any of you and tell you whether you fear God or not. Right? Because as soon as you're fearing God in some visible way, now there's like this fear of man thing also. Right? This, this tension, the, the ways in which we perform ourselves to other people to try to fit into a group, to um, connect with a, a, a community of persons, to try to like brand ourselves, to be something, to know something, to the, the ways that we signal to other people what we get, what we don't get, what tribe we're in, what tribe we're not in. We're always doing this fear of persons, fear of man management thing, and it's obviously more obvious when you're an adolescent because that's like you're just less good at hiding it. But then once you're out of adolescence, it's still there. You just kind of can manage it socially. Or some people can manage it more socially, more obviously. Right? Like, I don't know if you have this kind of, you ever have conversations with people, and when they're talking to you, you can tell that they, like, really want you to think blank about them. And it's like you feel like you're kind of being manipulated or, like, and 
you're like, I just want, I want you to be okay with being you, but I really want, I can tell that you want me to think that you are something. And now there's like this added pressure of like, I have to give you this, I believe that you're this, otherwise you're gonna be disappointed. And, and the, like the insecurity that's that, and it's, it's in my heart all the time. This, I want people to think something of me versus I want to be fearing the Lord. And so this, this eternal struggle between the fear of man, the fear of humanity that's in me, and the fear of the Lord that's in me. Again, I'm, I keep accidentally quoting St. Augustine, but he talked about how there's no sinless act, and here's what he meant by that, was that because even on our best days when we're full of the Holy Spirit, you're maybe like 80-20 fear of the Lord, fear of man. Right? There's always this kind of like self image branding thing going on. I really want to be seen. So then like the question for us is like, so does Nehemiah fear the Lord or does he want to be seen as someone who fears the Lord? That's like when you get into the real cynical stuff. Right? But that kind of like honest self-reflection is important for us. Do we really want to fear the Lord or do we want to seem like someone who fears the Lord? And it's a hard thing. Like as a as a teaching pastor, as a pastor you know, I have to be seen as someone who fears the Lord. There's, there's just a, a pressure there. You know. But I don't all the time. Some days I'm 60-40, some days I'm 40-60, some days I'm 90-10, some days I'm 10-90, some moments, some hours. And the hard thing is like, even trying to be honest with yourself about how much do I fear the Lord, and again, fear meaning attention, not like God's going to smite me. Because um, when you're covered in the blood of Jesus, it's not God's going to smite me. It's I'm battling to have my attention commanded by the fact that God's in the room with me. I don't want to be a functional atheist all the time. So if you're going to rate yourself, you know, scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like fear the Lord all the time, no exceptions, 1 being like, uh, you know, it's kind of like the new year, new me thing. You know, you, uh, you go on a diet in the last six days, and you're like, well, 6 out of 365. You know, it's maybe fear the Lord 6 out of 365, less than half percent people who like eat really good Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but then it's Thursday, Thursday, and it's Friday, and it's Saturday, and it's Sunday, you know, so you, three out of four days, you know, you've put what you should in your body, or whatever. Give, give yourself a number, scale one to ten. I fear the Lord, blank out of ten. I just think it's a healthy question to ask yourself all the time, because you're mostly measuring how attentive am I to God's presence, Because at least in my experience with my own sin, that all sin basically begins with me dropping out of awareness of God's presence. I first slip into this functional atheism, and then I start fearing all this other stuff that doesn't matter. The famine gets close to me. You know, like I remember like during the start of the pandemic last year, I checked my bank account. Well, first of all, I went on the social media fast, so then I had to do something else with my phone because I didn't solve the problem. I just swapped the thing. So then my wife's laughing at me over here. But So then I was, all of a sudden I was reading the ESPN app a ton because I got rid of social media. And then all of a sudden I was checking my bank account all the time because the stock market was going crazy. And I needed something to distract me from my present circumstances, which is why we go to our phone in the first place, right, to avoid our feelings and avoid the people around us. So I'm checking my bank account all the time. And then so it's like the famine hit, and there's like this obsession going back to it deal. And all of a sudden you kind of four hours goes by, and you're like, I've been an atheist for four hours. And what do you do? How do you, how do you 
walk back into the fear of the Lord. I do think this is part of the reason we pray, part of the reason we ask. Nehemiah asked, verse 19, remember me, my God, for I've done for these people. He considers them. So the question I want us to really reflect on here is uh, what power do you have? Possessions, positions, authority. Everyone has power in some places. Nobody has like the same amount of power. Power is not bad. Trying to eliminate power disparities is not the goal. Just like trying to eliminate all disparities in economic positions is not the goal. The goal is that people with power and with stuff consider people with it. We don't just ask what's best for me, we ask what's best for the people who are even not me. This is the heart and this is the way of Jesus. Because when we really fear the Lord, here's how, here's how I know uh, when I'm really walking in the fear of the Lord. Because sometimes fear of the Lord can feel so nebulous, it can feel so mystical, and it's just like this kind of um, me and this invisible God thing. Um, but the beauty of the creation story is that God gives us a representation of him all over the place. And it's people. That God, one of the first things he does, or actually like the sixth thing he does, is he creates humanity. And humanity's in God's image. That you all are meant to make me think of God. Your faces, your emotions, your thoughts. Image bearer, image bearer, image bearer of God. And so I know a lot of people who like say they really fear the Lord and then they're cruel to just the ordinary person. Right? The people were prone to dehumanize. Like this happened the other week. I've been making this mistake of praying for patience for my son, which means that I've had all these opportunities to be patient myself. That's kind of how it works. I'm praying for my son to be patient, and then I keep mostly seeing how impatient I am. You know, I'm praying, God help Jay be patient, because he just has ten- tantrums. You know? And then I'm on the phone with customer service, and I'm like, what type of... Yeah, and so I'm just kind of... You know, it sounds like it's a problem on your end. Oh, it's about to be a problem on your end. You know, and that's the, that's the. And there's like this kind of tension of like, do justice, fix your thing, but then I'm dehumanizing the person on the end of the phone. And if I was walking in the fear of the Lord, then I would treat people who are made in the image of the Lord, different. So it's kind of like the, the last idea I want to hit here is that like the fear of the Lord, you can put up that last slide, I think, up there. Never mind, anyway. I'll just say, it. oh, the fear of the Lord creates concern for the image of the Lord. And concern here could also be the word anxiety or regard. I'm considering them. I'm concerned about them. I'm anxious about them. I'm not just concerned for myself, but I'm concerned for others. And this is the way of Jesus. Jesus, who always walked in the fear of God Most High, who did not consider um, equality with God a thing to be held onto. He didn't hold onto his power and keep it and say, like, you've all created this problem, solve it yourself. But he ungrasped it and made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself. And so Paul tells us to be like Christ and consider others more significant than yourselves. This is the whole contrast here of Nehemiah and the other nobles is Nehemiah is considering the ordinary working person as more significant than himself, which is nuts, because Nehemiah is the noble, and those other people are therefore not the nobles. Radically countercultural. 
If you have anything in your gut that's like, yes, that's the way that it should be, I just want you to know that that came from the Jewish Bible and was ultimately solidified in the person of Jesus and made popular by the Apostle Paul and the church when it spread across the globe. No other worldview thinks that nobles like Nehemiah, landowners like Nehemiah, ought to be primarily considering the poor and the outcomes of their decisions and effects on the poor. There are loads of implications for this. Like what, I was talking to a couple of my friends at Gateway who um, would not consider themselves nobles, but they'd probably fit in that category. They own four or five rental houses. And they're talking about the tension they chronically feel about setting the price for rent on their rental homes. Because the market right now on rents is insane. If any of you are trying to rent a house or something like that, you realize it's insane. It is really hard. Right? And a lot of them have like mortgages that are like 1200 bucks, but like the fair rent on their property is like 3200 And then trying to work with people who are trying to survive. And so they're, what, what's happening is all these people are like renting their houses at substantially less than they could. What they're legally allowed to do and what the market says they're allowed to do because they're trying to walk in the fear of the Lord, not just in the fear of the supply and demand curve. And so the main thing that I notice is when I talk to these people is actually just being a Christian just adds more tension to their life. I know that it's actually a minority of people who own property and are having to consider how much rent should I charge. Sounds like what a gigantic non-problem. You know, my goodness. You know, Lord have mercy on you. You know, that sounds tough. Uh, but we all, all the time, are battling this tension between like what's best for me versus am I considering the, the downstream effects of my decisions? And so this, like, wisdom literature historical book is meant to point us to the person Jesus who considers others more significant than themselves when, in fact, for Jesus, they were not. But he acts like they were. Like, all people are as... Uh, we're all made in God's image, right? So we're all worthy and dignity of the same amount of value. But to consider others as more significant than us, so, like, none of you are more significant than me, and I'm not more significant than any of you, what we're all called to do is act like we're all less significant than everybody else. It's not just what's best for me, but it's what's best for the others. And this is one of the beauties of this, this, this deal is the fact that, uh, so Nehemiah, you see the end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah train wrecks. And he starts pulling out people's hair, getting real mad, loses his mind. So Nehemiah, in this chapter, looks like, wow, Nehemiah, way to be. What a guy. Everyone go home and be like Nehemiah. But you realize that even Nehemiah, who's like the pinnacle of holiness in that day, uh, can't keep it up. You know, there's, he's a sinner. Uh, one of the things that I love right now is um, my son has this little tykes hoop, you know, and he, it, it's adjustable, right? So there's like the low height and the high height, and every now and then he'll ask for like he'll say really high put it really high and he has this, these little balls and when it's on the lowest setting he can walk up and just dunk it then there's a setting up there that he can like shoot it pretty good but he went through this phase maybe a couple weeks ago where he just said really high really high and he would we had a couple friends who'd say like I think your one and a half year old has like the craziest attention span of any one and a half year old I've seen because he would take his ball and he would ask for the hoop really high, and he would sit there and he'd throw it and airball it, and he would do it dozens of times in a row, just airballing, 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 airballing. And every now and then he'd make it, but he just kept throwing it and airballing it, throwing it and airballing it. 
and I was seeing him asking, put the hoop up high, because he would prefer, and I'm not sure how long this is going to last, hopefully a long time, he would prefer to airball it on a high hoop than to slam dunk it on a low hoop. And there's something about me that I'm like, that's my boy, you know, that's the, <laughs> you know. And, you know, if you, if you uh, really want to follow Jesus, you're committing to airballing it on a high hoop a lot. A lot, a lot. But I feel like that's part of, like, deciding to try and follow Jesus is this, uh, you know, if I wanted to, like, just take the easy way out, I would just, what's best for me, live my life, leave an inheritance, whatever, move on. But when you're trying to follow, I want to make all of my decisions in my life informed by the fear of the Lord. You're committing to airball a lot. And most people... You go through periods of trying really hard. You might make one every now and then. But it's ultimately the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came and perfectly and without fault considered others more significant than themselves and died a substitutionary death. That we now get to shoot air balls, not because we're trying to earn something from God, but because God has already earned everything that we could possibly earn from him. So we airball insecurity. We don't lower the hoop. We keep trying to shoot air balls. We try to actually walk it out in faithfulness. But it's not about, I need to do this right, otherwise God's going to smite me. It's a, I want to do this right because I don't want the taunts of the nations to get in the way of my witness. Because right? the nations are taunting evangelicals. And by the nations, I mostly mean the media. But, you know, like, and a lot of it's our fault. A lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it is our fault. And one of the reasons we want to try to be faithful is because we want to be a faithful witness not just so we can say we did it, but so people can see our light and want to be a part of what God is doing. And so I just want to encourage us to keep shooting air balls, keep trying to walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord in such a way that causes you to consider the way that your actions affect all of the people who are the Lord's image. That Christians don't just ask what's best for me, but we ask what is the best way for me to leverage my power, my position, my possessions for the sake of the people who are not being considered. Again, because the nobles were not asking the question, how can we oppress the poor most effectively? They're asking the question, what's best for me in the middle of this famine? Totally natural question. Totally normal. Famines come and go. Human selfishness remains forever. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to receive communion here in a moment. God, I ask that you would help us. Help us consider those we don't consider. It's so hard to uh, recognize and acknowledge our blind spots. God, I do pray for the folks in this room who do have real power, real positions of influence, who do have uh, real economic positions that they can leverage to either help or hurt people, um, that you'd give them wisdom and discernment and help them fear you more than they fear the famine. God, I pray for the folks in this room who... Um, are trapped in unjust systems of economic process in the way that it's got them stuck. I pray that you'd help them uh, not walk in the shame of that, but that you would help them um, come to their brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for help and direction and wisdom. God, I pray that we would see you, that we'd fear you, that we would consider you, and that would lead us to love people in the way that you love people. In your son's name we pray.